I'm pleased to introduce Ben Wittes, who is sitting over here next to me. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Um, he formerly worked as a journalist for the Washington Post and before that, the Legal Times. Um, he is uh, a, a real expert on things like surveillance, detention, and constitutional law questions related to national security questions. Um, but he's also a, a bigger picture thinker as well, and that's one of the reasons I was excited that he could come today. He's written a number of books on national security issues. Um, of particular interest to me, he, along with uh, Jack Goldsmith and Bobby Chesney, founded the Lawfare blog, um, which is dedicated to discussing difficult issues of national security. And so if you have not checked it out, I encourage you to do so. You should also note that um, Ben is what I think of as a walking monopoly buster. Um, he is the best lawyer I know who never went to law school. So it's a, a modest act of treachery, I think, to potentially bring him onto law school grounds um, to speak to us today. Um, but all joking aside, I urge you to, um, to take a look at Ben's book, The Future of Violence, which is what he's going to be uh, talking to us today about. Um, and also thank you to the Human Rights Program for uh, bringing Ben here and sponsoring this event. So I'm going to turn it over to Ben now. Um, I've asked him to talk for 20 minutes or so about uh, the kinds of ideas he and his co-author, Gabby Bloom, uh, raise in the book, um, maybe talk a little bit about how it links to current events, and then I'll probably ask him a question or two before um, turning it over to the audience to see if you have questions as well. So with that, please join me in welcoming Ben Wittes. So... Uh, Thanks, Ashley. Um, I, uh, I never thought of my presence on a law school campus as treachery so much as fraudulence. Um, I, uh, yeah, I always feel a little bit strange coming in t and talking at a law school, particularly ones that I never would have had a hope of getting into as a student. Um, so I wanna, I'm going to talk through the sort of broad themes of the future of violence, which, um, and I'm going to because it's a small group and, and um, you know, uh, it's been a number of months since the book was published and a lot of things have happened. I'm going to sort of depart a little bit from my, my kind of standard book talk and uh, talk a little bit about some of the research that I've been doing on one particular class of cases that we thought about in the context of writing this book, um, which I'm going to start with. Um, so first of all, Everything you like about this book is my contribution to it. All the mistakes, all the things you disagree with, that's what Gabby uh, added. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I, this was really, you know, a very... There, there are co-authorships that are sort of real collaborations where the two people have sort of uh, similar skills and work together because they kind of feed off each other. And then there are collaborations like this one where we brought you know, very, very different things to the table um, and tried to bring this subject uh, kind of uh, kind of bring to bear both on, on, on the subject and that's, uh, this is very much in that latter category. So I want to start with uh, three uh, types of attack that I think our, uh, we, we opened the book with and I want to kind of flesh out a little bit um, as sort of exemplars of what I think of are, is, is, you know, both the presence 
of present of, but also in some respect, the future of violence. So let's start with, um, you know, the BP oil spill. When, when, when that happened um, and, uh, you know, millions and millions of gallons of oil pour into the, start pouring into the Gulf of Mexico, um, people forget this now, but the initial assumption in the federal government was that that was an attack, not an accident. Uh, and I've actually spoken to somebody who was at the sort of senior levels, um, sort of Senate-confirmed levels of the national security bureaucracy, um, who described to me the immense feeling of relief that they had when they realized it was just an accident and they could kind of kick it over to the EPA, right, rather than to think about the question who had attacked us what was it? Was it a crime? Was it a, you know, a military attack? So just imagine for a moment that you, constri- you know, it's for- perfectly possible to blow up an oil rig. It's not, you know, in the, in the scope of really difficult things to do, it's, you know, not that big a deal, right? And so imagine for a minute that the BP oil spill had actually been caused by an attack. Now, if you don't want it to be Al-Qaeda, you can make it, you know, whatever your favorite terrorist group is, you can make it a state-sponsored act, you can make it an individual. Point is that the exact same thing happens, only it's volitional. Somebody meant to do it. Um, And I think, first of all, a few things would come into view the the moment you think of the BP oil spill that way. The first is that this is the most successful attack on the United States since 9-11. In economic terms, it's hugely, hugely damaging. It despoils a large stretch of coast. 11 people get killed. Um, And the uh, economic costs, the last I checked, were in the tens of billions of dollars. Um, Second thing you'd realize, if you saw it this way, is that the United States government had no ability to defend against the attack. The um, defense against this attack was conducted entirely by a private company. Uh, The private company was responsible for plugging the well, which the US government had no no, um, capacity to do. It was responsible also for the cleanup. um, And, I think that's just a a really interesting thing to reflect on, that you can imagine an attack of that magnitude on the United States. The Coast Guard was sailing ships around, kind of, you know, I always think of it as sort of like the the, uh, gymnastics or diving rating, you know, judges in the Olympics, you know, holding up 5'8", 5'9", you know, um, kind of grading BP's performance but was really in a, in a hortatory role with respect to the actual kinetic defense of the coast, which was done by a private corporation and, by the way, a multinational corporation not based in the United States. Um, hold that thought. So the second type of attack I want to talk about is a type that I've actually this work for this book has caused me to do a fair bit of subsequent research on, um, 
because I think it's not in the national security context, but I think it's sort of particularly interesting as you think about the future of violence. And that is a category of cases, there's no technical term for them. The prosecutors colloquially refer to them as sextortion cases. Um, they're sometimes called involuntary pornography cases. Um, and I don't really know what to call them, actually. Uh, so for purposes, present purposes, let's call them sextortion. The example that we use in, in the book, which is a, a true and really horrifying case out of California, uh, is a case of a guy named Luis Mijangos. He's a quite talented hacker uh, who, like a lot of hackers, spread malware around uh, that steal data from people. Uh, only Mijangos, the, the malware that he spread was not, it stole people's credit card numbers sort of in passing, but mostly what it did is it turned people's webcams against them and got, um, you know, naked pictures of the FBI estimates between over 200 uh, young women and girls. He then would also steal the contents of their address books, uh, contact information, and have his malware propagated to their friends. So he developed a sort of large network of people from whom he stole involuntary uh, images in, in various states of undress, which he then used to extort the production of more uh, pornographic material from the victims. Um, so the FBI, as I say, estimated that there were more than 200 victims. Um, and what I've found as I've looked at sort of similar cases over the last uh, several months is that there are actually a huge number of them. Um, and that there is, you know, we, there, there's been a lot of news coverage recently of efforts to regulate what, what people call revenge porn. Um, but these cases are actually remarkably common. They're, they're different from the revenge porn cases because the images are not initially taken voluntarily. Uh, some of them are really horrible cases. But for present purposes... Just focus on that. I'm happy to talk more about the sextortion cases if, if, uh, if you want. But um, for present purposes, just ruminate on this. I think this is the first time in human history that it has been possible to sexually assault somebody across a state line, across an international border, or without actually being in the same room as the person. Um, Finally, a uh, third type of attack is the type that uh, actually, you know, the cover of the book reflects um, and is still a little bit, uh, you know, still in the realm of the hypothetical in contrast to, I think, the other two. Although this is Gabby's, uh, I th she wouldn't mind my saying sort of pathological fear. Gabby doesn't like spiders. And um, so when, when she was sort of imagining the nightmare of the future of violence. To her, it is the spider that you cannot, in your bathroom, that you cannot tell if it is A, real, B, robotic. And if robotic, is it there to spy on you uh, or is it there to kill you? Um, so if that sounds hopelessly and paranoidly futuristic, uh, you know, insect-sized drones are actually, actually exist. They're not uh, 
as we describe in the book. They're not you know, remotely operable and cap capable of testing your DNA and then injecting you with poison yet. Uh, but I think it's an, it's an interesting question, sort of what's the, what's the, what is the actual limiting factor that would prevent, uh, say, an international assassination attempt against an individual using something really small and remotely operable? And the ironic and, I think, terrifying answer to that question is battery life that you know, what actually limits the ability to make really tiny robots really powerful is that we just kind of haven't figured out how to give them long enough battery life yet. And I submit that that's a resolvable problem. Um, Vladimir Putin you know, had um, uh, very famously a former crony um, you know, killed in London using uh, radioactive materials. Uh, there's something theatrical about doing it that way, right? Uh, there's also something theatrical about using something very, very high tech. Um, so we are at the stage now where the United States government can and does routinely use uh, lethal unmanned aerial vehicles uh, to carry out kinetic operations uh, you know, strikes against, um, you know, high-value targets and, and al-Qaeda targets. Um, I think the question is when, not whether, that technology will get smaller and smaller and migrate to more and more actors until the point that you, just as you now have to ask the question, uh, what is the limit of the right to keep and bear arms? That as a practical matter, there's no question that each of us can go out and get a gun. I think the question of what, what, what's the point at which any of us will have access to lethal robotics as a functional matter is a question of time, not a question of weather. Okay, so let's, let's try to put all this together. Um, and I think what, what you see is that the power... A, to attack is really, really migrating and migrating, proliferating not just among states or between states and non-state actors, but between thing, between, down to the level of the individual. More and more people have the opportunity to do things that we would traditionally associate with state violence. Number two, that the... Um, the power to defend is also migrating. And this is, you know, many more people observe the former than the latter, but it's not just BP that is sort of responsible for protecting national security, right? It's also every telecommunications company. Uh, it's also every internet company. And this is, of course, the tectonic reason, I think, why we have this uh, constant push-pull now between internet companies and you know, the NSA over what the relationship between those companies will be, uh, between the companies and the government will be. And the reason is that the US government actually can't do anything anymore in the signals intelligence department without the pervasive cooperation of a series of companies.
Um, and then finally, uh, and this is, I think, probably, I want to be a little bit careful with how I say this, uh, vulnerability as a, necessarily increases as the power to attack increases. Now, I want to be clear about what I mean by that, which is I don't mean that we're all like less secure than we used to be. Because actually, the data pretty unambiguously contradicts that. Um, people are, generally speaking, more secure than they used to be. Um, what I mean when I say that, the, that vulnerability increases is that the number of different ways you can be attacked keeps going up. So if you think about like a, a long time ago, I don't know when, you really had to be in the same room with somebody, in the same physical space as somebody to attack that person. Now we all get attacked a hundred times a day by people in, you know, just think about the Nigerian spam emails you get. These are individual level attacks directed at you transcontinentally intercontinentally. Um, that's a very recent thing that that was possible. Um, so when I say vulnerability is increasing, what I actually mean is that the number of mo the modalities of possible attack is increasing. And what I want to suggest, and, I, and I'm going to flesh this out a little bit, and then I'm going to stop and kind of open it up, is that in a world in which and this is sort of the working premise of the book. Anybody can attack anybody from anywhere. Um, and anybody means any state, any organization, any small group, any individual. Uh, it's a world in which Edward Snowden can attack NSA, right? So the smallest individual can attack successfully very, very large entities. Um, it's also a world in which Edward Snowden or Luis Mijangos can attack you individually. Uh, it's a world in which everybody has to regard individuals as more of a strategic threat possibility than we used to think of. Um, that's a world in which the way we've traditionally thought about things like the social contract get kind of complicated. So if you think about the way liberal political theory imagined the social contract, you had these, these entities, right, call them states, in which somebody, some kind of organized political outfit could exercise what they called sovereignty. And sovereignty meant that, you know, this, this entity, this Leviathan, had power in that space. And the source of that power is the ability to provide security. And security meant really two distinct things. One is dispute resolution within the physical space, protect you from your fellow Luis Mijangos's. But the second thing was to protect against external attack 
from the organized forces of the other sovereign entities. And in this world, the seams between the sovereignties, borders, really, really matter. Um, now, people have been saying, at, you know, at least since Marx, and probably since a lot longer ago than that, that we're you know, coming to the end of, of conventional notions of sovereignty. And I, I think sovereignty has been a lot more robust than that and will continue to be. But when you look at OMB, when you look at uh, WikiLeaks, when you look at you know, my imagined version of the BP oil spill, when you look at North Korea attacking Sony, what do you, I mean, you, 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 have, you can't escape the idea that those seams are less meaningful than they used to be. That something has really, is, is really in this power to attack across borders and to attack um, from well within one sovereign to well within another is something uh, very new, very different. Um, the second working assumption, um, and I think we've seen, I guess not since the publication of the book, but shortly before it, uh, a real, really interesting breakdown in this. The, set, the, the, the working assumption of you know, of, of this sort of liberal political tradition is you have a contract with your own government and other people have a contract with their government. Now think about that in the context of the Snowden revelations where, you know, the U.S. responds, I think quite reasonably under U.S. law, hey, we have all these wonderful protections for U.S. persons in U.S. surveillance law. And amusingly, People all over the world don't find that very satisfying. Because if you're a German or if you're a Brazilian, the fact that the U.S. surveillance law protects U.S. persons doesn't actually reassure you very much because the flip side of that is that you're just a target, right? And here's the amazing part. The U.S. bought it. So when President Obama issued his uh, presidential decision directive in response to the Snowden revelations uh, and to the out international outcry, he recognized for the first time, again, I think the first time in human history, a country recognized the privacy rights of non-nationals overseas in its in its engagement, a collection of signals intelligence. That's a sort of a remarkable thing. It suggests that there's something deficient about our conventional view of the social contract, right? It says we owe something not merely to the U.S. persons who may get caught up in, in signals intelligence, but to everybody else who may get caught up in signals intelligence. So why is that? Why are we reacting that way? And what I want to suggest, and this is where I'll stop, is that the reason we're reacting that way is that we're intuiting what our law already reflects in a lot of ways. 
which is that the power to engage, the power to attack, the power to defend internationally necessarily expands the view of the social contract that we've been, we've been handed down. And I want to suggest three or four ways that that social contract is necessarily going to expand as this set of trends continue. So the first is, as I just suggested, it gets more international. It's no longer enough to say, you know, Vladimir Putin owes something to Russians. Uh, Barack Obama owes something to us. We're already sort of starting to talk about the question of we're talking about whether it's okay for China to steal from our companies, right? We're talking about whether it's okay for us to incidentally spy on lots of German and Brazilian people. These are incomprehensible conversations 50 years ago, I think. Um, so I think the social contract necessarily becomes more international in a world where anyone can attack anyone from anywhere. Second, it has to incorporate the private sector. It does begin to incorporate the private sector. So if you think about like the, the sort of Lockean or Hobbesian social contract, the private sector actually doesn't exist in it at all. Um, and actually in the U.S. Constitution, you know, you think of there's, there's, there's not, the, you know, people didn't imagine the corporation, the multinational corporation as sort of part of the discussion. Google disrupts that. You know, the idea that you're entrusting very large amounts of your life to some outfit that may store that data here, may store it overseas, some of it may be on your computer, some of it may not be on your computer. All of it is accessible under some circumstances. And that's just true not just in the data context, right? It's true in uh, in a hundred other areas where um, companies are playing roles that then become essential, essentially relevant to national security protection. And how has the law responded to this? So the telecommunications area is a really interesting example of this. 20 years ago uh, in Kalia, Congress sort of saw this coming down the road, or it was already happening back then. And Congress actually started to write into the law the obligations of these companies to participate in both national security and criminal investigations. Uh, and that continued. If you look at you know, the 702 program that's so controversial now, again, that is a statutory obligation of companies, internet companies mostly, to provide NSA with, with certain types of communications data. And so what we've done, and I submit will continue to do is to write the obligations of these companies that bear certain functions that the government can't replicate in the national security space. We're starting to write them into the fabric of the law. Now, if you look at the BP example, if you go back to the BP example, BP was legally speaking the responsible party for that cleanup. And I think the more you go into a world where everyone can attack everyone from anywhere, the more you are going to see 
companies that are the platforms for those attacks have fundamental ongoing legal obligations to defend against them. Um, finally, um, I think there's another weird component of this, uh, this sort of social contract, which is that the whole thing doesn't work if there are big ungoverned spaces in the world. That is, if you can just go to Mali and do whatever you were going to do in Cleveland, um, the premise, right, that, you know, anywhere, for purposes of anywhere, one can attack anyone from anywhere, really does mean anywhere. And, you know, Anwar al-Alauki is a good example of that, right? Eventually, to deal with Anwar al-Alauki, you had to go to Yemen. And so the problem of ungoverned spaces becomes not merely a strategic problem, but a fundamental legal problem and a legal architectural problem. And I think this is a this is probably the most underdeveloped idea in the book. Um, and but I think it may also be one of the more important ideas. So I'll just sketch it out. If you're going to have effective response to this environment, it has to be international. It has to be a response in which com- countries are coordinating their laws uh, and have relatively unified set of what enforcement looks like. That would tend to make you believe in a much more integrated uh, you know, global governance set of frameworks. On the other hand, the exigencies of any given moment will cause you to behave in a much more unilateral fashion sometimes. And Al-Alauki is a good example of that, right? You, you, there's no Yemeni law enforcement worth speaking of to call up and say, hey, could you extradite Mr. Al-Alauki? So you end up sending in a drone. And so it creates this very unusual, and I suspect this is going to continue, push in opposite directions at the same time. On the one hand, toward a greater internationalization of law, of, you know, of, of cooperations, of law enforcement, of military activity. And on the other hand, a greater unilateralism at the same time. Uh, I don't know what to do with that idea. Um, but I'm going to stop there and uh, open it up and engage on any subjects you find outrageous or compelling or interesting or quizzical in, in what I've said. Thank you.